You know, I hate to tell you, Kenny Coleman, but I decided to taste a sip of your sample at like, mm, it must have been 11 o'clock in the morning, and that pretty much finished me. (laughs) 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 Listeners, Kenny Coleman is um, a co-founder and CEO of Pursuit Spirits, and we're going to have him tell us about Pursuit Spirits. Uh, I, they came to my attention because of winning all these awards. Um, Kenny, what, when, how old is Pursuit Spirits? Yeah, so our actual whiskey company didn't get started until around 2018, but we have a little bit of a history before that because we started off as podcasters. That's really how we started off our brand and everything like that because we, to this day, we still run Bourbon Pursuit which has now grown into the world's largest whiskey podcast. And it's something that it, maybe it seems like it, it would be a natural extension, but it definitely didn't happen like that. It was mm-hmm. just a, through a bunch of happenstance, lucky guesses, right people, and one random phone call that now we are here in you know, 2022, 2023, and we're millions of dollars in debt with a bunch of barrels to our name. But it's a... <laughs> it's a it's a fun process. Well, you, you just got a big chunk of money from somebody. So we raised um, around $8 million so far. So $2 million of that was through private capital with you know, typical friends, family, and fools. That, you know, we gave them a really good return <laughs> on their investment, but it's the whiskey game. So there's a lot of time that you have to wait until you get your return on investment. What we're doing is we're waiting until around like probably around five years is when the note is due. And that's when we can start selling those barrels. It's, that's the hard part about whiskey is that it, it, it would be awesome if you could just buy it today and sell it tomorrow. But unfortunately, it's one of those things that you got to buy and you got to wait, you know, at least two years. But if you really want it to start tasting good for five, six years, uh, typically is what you, what you need. So we raised okay. $2 million through that. And then we had established ourselves and our brand as well as, as you mentioned earlier, started winning some awards. And so we had a bank reach out to us and wanted to help finance it. And that's really what kind of kicked off. Yeah, that's kind of what kicked off the next, which is great because they're going to finance the next $6 million of barrels that we need over the next five years, which is amazing for us because that gets us out of always having to worry about chasing for money. And now we get to focus on things such as talking to you and making sure we do things <laughs> like marketing, product development, uh, and a lot of other cool things that we have in the, the pipeline going in the future, too. But your, your business models, uh, with, with all due respect, is a little bit different because you, do, you don't actually make the product that you blend and then sell, if I'm understanding yeah, very correctly. Good. Yeah, yeah, very true. So it was funny when we got into this this business, uh, just doing the podcast in general, that's when we started becoming a lot more educated consumers. And today, the the modern bourbon drinker is more educated than they ever have been in their lives. I remember when I first got started, I'd look at the wall of bottles on the shelf, and I thought that everybody just had their own distillery. I thought that's just how it worked. I didn't know there was this whole back-end thing called the sourced market where you could go and just buy barrels off of people that have them or talk to distilleries that have excess capacity. And that's what you could use to bottle as your own. You put it in your own bottle and you have a marketing story behind it. And, you know, kind of that was that. 
And that's really kind of what it got kicked off for us, and, and it made more sense because we're podcasters. We don't have $30 million to go and start a distillery, and you know, we're, not, we're not chemical engineers. We didn't have the know-how. We didn't really want to do that. And we looked at this other side of actually looking at, well, first we looked at sourcing by being able to buy aged product that's ready to go and, and put in a bottle and blend it ourselves. But we also looked at contracting. And contracting is we're essentially cooks in somebody else's kitchen, as, as a lack for a better term. So we go to the distilleries and we say, this is our mash bill. This is what you want it to make for us. And what we want to do is we don't want to be any kind of regular typical uh, whiskey that you would see out there because most whiskeys on the market are – it's the way that we kind of coin it is it's just more of the same because there are five or six major manufacturers out there. That means there's five or six major brands that are on the market, and most of them have um, – you know they, they create one or two different mash bills. They have 50 different labels from them or people are buying the same exact product from one distillery, putting their own label on it. And we just said, we've basically tried, I think, everything that's out there. So instead of doing more of the same, let's create something different. And that's where we looked at blending. So what we're doing is bringing in multiple barrels, not just from one distillery, but from multiple distilleries and making sure that they're different barrel, different barrel types, different mash bills, different aging climates, everything yeah, like Peter that. Peter tried to explain to me what a mash bill was. I wonder if any of our listeners would like an explanation. Well, let, let's come back to that one because I'm very interested to hear Kenny's expl- explanation of, of mash bill and why it's called that. Yeah. Uh, um, but, so it's yeah. You have uh, two terms for it. You have the word mash bill or grain bill. They're all pretty typically used synonymously. And what it means is all the grains that go into creating a mash. And so a mash is a part of the process of when you go to start creating what's called distiller's beer or what is made before you start making whiskey. So this is when you bring in different grains like corn, wheat, barley, rye, and everything like that to figure out what is it that you want. So to give you an instance, when we work with Bartstown Bourbon Company, the mash bill that we run over there is 78% corn, 10% rye, 12% malted barley. And each one of those has a different aspect of what you want in a flavor component. So the more corn that you have into it, the sweeter it's going to be. By law of definition for bourbon, you have to have at least 51% of corn be inside your mash bill. You, like I said, 51 to anywhere up to hundred, it still can be considered bourbon. But typically, you see that within the, uh, uh, the high 60s to the low 80s is typically in the corn content. And then you start swapping it out with either the rye or the wheated content. And traditionally, rye is a grain that is the secondary grain that's used. And that's mostly to depend on how spice forward do you want your whiskey to be. So if you want it to be a little more spicy, you're going to go up in maybe the upper 20s or the mid-20s to be there. Or if you don't want it as much, you're going to be, as you know, kind of said with ours, is around 10%. And you can also flip that with, say, a wheat component instead of rye. And that is, again, another uh, just grain that you use to create a different taste profile. And then last is malted barley. Uh, and the barley is typically there uh, not as much for flavor, but mostly just for a product that helps break down the enzymes and turn the cord into starches and everything like that to help the distillation process. 
So, so it helps in the brewing, if you like. Yeah, it is correct. Of, of the whiskey, not 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 quite the right word, but I got but I got the picture. Now, yep. c- compare, if you would, and this, this is not to say yours is wonderful stuff because I've been drinking it and it's almost gone. <laughs> it's true. I, mean, I guess we did something right. Yeah, great to hear. But but you but you have you have some whiskies out there that are sort of how do I describe it? They're late, late, legendary. And uh, the, the iconic, iconic, iconic would be another way of describing it. But what's what's the whiskey that everyone wants to buy, but you can't because there's not any available. Pappy, um, Pappy, yeah, Pappy Van Pappy, Winkle. I mean, yeah. I mean, are you, do you want to be Pappy when you grow up? <laughs> you know, I don't even. Here's the thing. The great thing is I've I've had a relationship with Julian Van Winkle before. I had a chance to talk to him uh, on occasion, and it's one of those things that even he didn't know what Pappy was going to turn into. It's one of those things that that this industry has been kind of taken by storm over the past decade, and that was one of those – types of unicorn moments then in history that you'll probably never see repeated ever again. But and you it think was just it's one of the PR, I mean what is it a quality or a particular taste profile or is it PR? I mean it's let's let's take up all the above. I mean I think that's pretty pretty much what it comes down to. Um the way it all got started was, you know, Julian Van Winkle and Pappy Van Winkle it's actually no different than what we do. Um, they don't distill their own product, right? They source, okay. and that's, okay. what, that's what they were doing early on. So they were actually sourcing it from multiple different places, and one of the ones that really put them on the map were when they were putting uh, stuff in the bottle that was coming from the old Stutzweller distillery here in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, when Stutzweller closed their doors in 93, they had to figure out what they were going to do next, and so they had bounced around a few different places, had a few different types of whiskeys that went into the bottle, and they ended up scoring a 99 on the Beverage Institute scale that kind of really put them on the map, for, for lack of a better word. And once that happened, it really kind of kicked off. Well, it, it was that. Uh, Anthony Bourdain talked about Pappy Van Winkle. It was a, a whole slew of things that just went right for him. And once that happened, you know, once that happened, it was just a, a roller coaster of, of – you know, good, good fortune, good luck, and everything like that. But I mean, there's there's so many great stories out there by Julian that you know they, he couldn't give his stuff away early on. I mean, nobody wanted really? it, and that's that's yeah. I mean, that's that's the the tail cell of, of how bourbons come along is that he couldn't get rid of it early on, and nobody wanted to buy it. They were giving case deals just to have people try it, and you're talking fifteen, twenty year old product. <laughs> it's funny. We, yeah, we, I mean, we, we, we were at a cocktail party in Charleston, South Carolina, and the the only liquid beverage that was available was Pappy. And Julian stood there at the bar and basked in all, in, in all of the... Yeah, it was the Sean Brock's restaurant. The Sean yeah, Brock used right. to buy the case in mm-hmm. the barrel. But yep. it's, it's funny because we... One one of our trips to to London, and the, the reason I'm saying this will be will emerge shortly. We we were talking to a, an American businessman 
in the in the either breakfast or the cocktail lounge, I forget which it was. Let's call it the cocktail lounge, just for the hell of it. And and somebody called him, and he said, "I just heard that such and such a shop has Pappy, and I'm going to go buy some right now." <laughs> so, That's so the way to do it. A legend now, just to c- continue on the same theme. The first the first or second time I was in Kentucky. I was there on business. It was totally, totally more like what business you were in before you did podcasts because it was communications technology. But the local guys introduced me to a bourbon they said was the very best. And it's called, <laughs> I've forgotten what it's called. Sweetheart, what, what did Gina, I don't know. what did Gina drink all the time? Wood, Woodford Reserve. So they said the, the, you must drink Woodford Reserve. Now, I I didn't really know as much about bourbon then as I know now, so I just sucked it up and woke up the next morning with a modest headache. So I figured <laughs> figured it must be figured it must be all right. Yes, yeah. I mean, Brown Foreman makes impressive products as well. I mean, that's that's the great thing is that this industry is just full of um, a lot of great stuff, and and we're fortunate enough that we've made the right partnerships to create our own brand and our own label to help kind of spearhead that as well and help grow the industry too. Well, how did you learn so much about bourbon? You grew up in Kentucky. Eh, you know, you'd say you grew up in Kentucky, but honestly, it was it was just curiosity is kind of what got me. I'm the type of individual that when you find something and you like it, you just go all in. You just turn it up to 11. And that's pretty much what happened with me. Once the bug really bit me, I mean, I was drinking bourbon, you know, starting in college. It didn't really stop for, for a long time. But we all go through the same sort of growth model, if you will, where you're mixing it with you know, Coke or something like that. And then you take out the Coke and you're drinking it on ice. And then all of a sudden you're removing the ice, you're drinking it neat. And then nowadays we're drinking 140 proof whiskey going, oh yeah, that's, that tastes pretty smooth. That's, so, that's really, it's really strong. <laughs> it kind of set me on my bum. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I forgot, I forgot to mention this in our conversation so far. It's there. I guess there, there was a rebellion from the, from the, from customers of the guys with the with the wax the red wax on top of the bottle no yeah maker's mark yep maker's mark maker's mark if i'm if i'm recalling correctly just a few years ago decided they would change the proof level oh yeah right and and then mm-hmm. they got a total rebellion of all the people who like maker's mark so they had to put it back Yep, that did happen yeah the uh, the people spoke up because they were running into an issue with um, the amount of whiskey they actually had, and so they were going to remove it just by a few proof points, which, by and large, most consumers probably wouldn't, wouldn't have. Be able to they tell, wouldn't, right? They wouldn't taste the difference, but the fact that they made an announcement about it and people discovered it, they didn't want it. They didn't want that, so they kind of had to backtrack a little bit. But yeah, it's it's always one of those things that in this industry you always have to listen to the customer. I mean, they're the ones that are going to guide you and be your ambassadors at the end of the day sure. and be the one talking sure. about it. So you've got to make sure you, you keep the people happy. Let's, let's now, talk. could I ask what's the difference between rye and bourbon? I mean, not, I, yeah. I know, but I just thought we'd get it out there. 
Yeah, so I mean, it's it's pretty simple, right? So by law and by definition, a bourbon has to be with a mash bill of at least 51% corn inside of there. Uh, there's about four other, five, or actually probably seven other laws that, that go into becoming a, a bourbon as a bourbon and not just a regular whiskey, but a rye whiskey is the flip of that. So you're looking at at least 51% of the mash bill is rye, and then you can supplement it with all the other grains on top of there. So it's just really the predominant grain that goes into it. But now, the, is there something about aging too, having to do with new barrels and old barrels? So correct. So to be by law for bourbon, it has to go into a new charred oak container. Um, and typically, yes, that's a 53-gallon barrel. And you age it for a certain period of time. By law, there is no definition on how long you have to age it to be called a bourbon. It has to be at least two years to be considered a straight bourbon. Anything that's under four years, you have to put on the label uh, of an age statement to say that this is only 36 months old or two years old or something like that. But once it reaches four years, you no longer have to put an age statement on the bottle. So that's okay. just uh, another way that people help from a consumer protection standpoint. So you know exactly what you're looking at when you're reading a bottle. But that's what straight means. So straight means that it's aged for two years, and by law and definition, straight as long as bourbon means that there's no coloring, additives, or flavoring that can be added to it. Okay. So there's no, yeah, there's no sugar packets. There's no caramel coloring. It's always funny when we do all kinds of reviews for the podcast side, and we'll be like, oh, yeah, you get notes of chocolate, leather, brown pepper, and all this other <laughs> sort of stuff. People aren't infusing it with leather or chocolate. That's just what you kind of – you know, associate with it. Yeah, yeah we, we 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 have we have been told that the Scots would would r run out of a capability to make Scotch whiskey if you guys didn't make so many barrels. <laughs> that is true. Yeah, because for bourbon, uh, by law, it has to be a new charred oak container. So if you use it in a secondary use bourbon barrel, it's no longer considered bourbon. It just can be right. an American whiskey. But you're right, most of the big conglomerates out there, your Brown Foremans, your Diageos, Constellations, so on and so forth, not only do they own bourbon brands, but they also own Scotch brands. So uh, after, they get done, you know, after they get done dumping a bunch of bourbon barrels, they put them on a container and ship them on over to, the, you know, to Scotland or Ireland or anywhere else like that and reuse those barrels for those particular types of whiskeys. Well, we used to get them from somebody, I can't remember who, and use it in our grill. Oh, yeah. We oh, they make chips. amazing smoking chips. We got the chips from, chips. from Booker. We got it from Booker. Yeah. Now. Booker, okay. Yeah. Booker came and did a, did a, a seminar on, on what bourbon. What a character he is. <laughs> was. <laughs> yeah. His, his, wife My, was even, his wife was even more of a character. She was incredible. <laughs> she, she must have weighed in at, at least 52 pounds, ringing weight. <laughs> And she, she, and she spoke. And he's the size of which, the house, yeah. Because a lot of us did back back then. Oh yeah, we. Uh, it's, so my partner, people. my partner, and all this, Ryan, he grew up in Bardstown. So uh -huh. he, you know, he said Booker No used to go to all his football games. He played with Freddie No, which is the oh, next yeah. generation master distiller at Buff, or sorry at Jim Beam. Um, yeah. So they used to play football together. So we've got a great relationship with Freddie over there too. Right. We 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 interviewed Freddie at the Pittsburgh Wine and Whiskey Festival a few, a few years back until, until, until the hordes of people who came to drink as much bourbon as they could 
in the shortest <laughs> amount of time. Spoil, That's usually what spoil, it is. Spoil, spoil the industry for what it is. Yeah. There was one. There was one other character that that we that we enjoyed talking to. I think his last name was Henderson, and and I, and I believe he yeah. might have launched the, the Woodford Reserve brand. But um, so but there then, was. But then he, yeah. then his his son talked him into joining him to to make a new whiskey called Angel's Envy. Oh yeah, that we did correct. that for a while. And then, and then yeah. up up and at it. Mr. Henderson died. Really careless of him. <laughs> uh, well, Lincoln Henderson died. Um, it was a it was a health complication that was uh, a while ago. But yeah, but no, then yeah. So Wes and the Hender his his children had it for a while, and then they sold to Bacardi. So that's okay, kind of where it rests right now. Okay, all right. <laughs> so you've really networked in. It's like a a, a club of, of you whiskey makers, huh? I mean, we've been very fortunate with the podcast to meet pretty much everybody in the industry, and that's really what we used as not only just for that. I mean, we, we we learned so much. We got to meet people, hear their stories, but we also got to learn what it took to taste, select, blend really great whiskey. So it was one of those things that we not only just used them for you know a, a learning experience, but even today we use them as a sounding board. I mean, we constantly are talking to Trey Zoller from Jefferson's and he gives us, a, you know, financial advice when we need it. And, and oh, nice. more people that are, that are, that, you know, they've, they've been through this before. And I think that's just one of those things that we found through this is that they talk about the bourbon industry being one of those places where yes, there's competition, but it's really friends among enemies is what it really comes down to because you are looking at it that if anybody's ever down, you kind of help them out. And that's been one of those things that even like Trey from Jefferson's, you know, he always said that, you know, he feels blessed beyond belief to see exactly, you know, where his brand has gone. And he feels that, you know, he, he can help us and help pay it forward to help, you know, help save us from all the mistakes that he made in the past too. Well, isn't yeah. that nice? I mean, it's so, it's, it's very spirit lifting <laughs> to know yeah. that you catch that right? pun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now, um, how how do you figure out what? I mean, how many different expressions do you have? Yeah, so we've got a few right now. We have our our initial uh, flagship, which you all have right there. So we have our Pursuit United Bourbon, which is a yeah. blend of three different distillates from three different distilleries, three different states, right. aging climates, and stuff like that. And so we partner with Bardstown Bourbon Company. There's another distillery in New York called Finger Lakes Distilling. And then there's yeah. a third distillery that's about 30 miles south of Nashville um, that we can't talk about, but it's not George Dickel, so anybody that's wondering, so it's not them. Okay. Um, but when you taste it, you'll know exactly it's not them. And then that's our bourbon. And we have a few different continual releases we're doing in the bourbon, so we're changing the blend every once in a while to just kind of keep tweaking things and keep it fun and interesting. We also have Pursuit United Rye, which followed on the the foots or the heels of the bourbon, because you know if you're a whiskey company, you got to have a rye whiskey too. For that, uh -huh. we partnered as well with Bartstown Bourbon Company, but we're also partnered with Sagamore Spirit, that's based out of Baltimore, Maryland, and we use both of their mash bills plus uh, Bartstown's. So we're utilizing three different distillates. But what makes that one a little bit different 
is that we are utilizing a very corn-heavy rye mash bill inside of that one. So we use a 52% rye, 43% corn, 5% malted barley wow. as the, the, the true base of it. So when you taste it, it's not a typical rye flavor profile. Most people think of 95.5 as the typical rye that you get from Bullet or Redemption or all the stuff on the shelf that all actually all comes from the same single source. And so people <laughs> assume that most people assume that rye whiskey is going to be this big sort of like punch in your mouth. It's just this big, bold rye spice. But we wanted to be more of a Kentucky-style rye. And a Kentucky-style rye is definitely more corn-forward. And so that's why it's a lot sweeter on the palate versus something that's just more rye-focused. It's also having a great comeback, is it not? I mean, I remember my mother's friends used to drink rye. They used to drink four, I told you, they used to drink four roses. Junk stuff, yeah, but it was <laughs> rye. I mean, nobody, they were big nobody, on... Nobody in their right mind who liked whiskey would drink four roses. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, they no mixed it with no, Coca-Cola. <laughs> no, no, no prejudices around here. I, 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 will, I will let you in on a little secret. It took, it took me five minutes to fig, figure out what I was talking about and I was going to talk to you about, about my favorite cocktail from the south, particularly from New Orleans, and I couldn't remember the name. And so I had to look it up on the Internet, and lo and behold, it came up. It was a Sazerac. It was a Sazerac. Sazerac, mm-hmm. which, is, yep. it, which doesn't it, have any rye in it, does it? Oh, yeah, it yeah. definitely has rye in it. Oh, yeah. Oh, it has rye. I never had a Sazerac. The, inter- the interesting thing is it used to have bourbon, it used to have cognac in it. And then when the cognac supply dried up, oh somewhat, yeah, now I remember. You, we you remember the story. People, the, yeah, people right. started people started using whiskey instead, but it wasn't out of preference. It was out of the fact that they couldn't get cognac in sufficient quantity and price to create the cocktail the way they wanted. Yeah. Well, now Kenny, we have one final thing to to get out there is how does anybody get this? Oh, you, well, you I listed be, certain states that you could get it in. Is that, is that it? You can't do internet or anything like that, huh? So there's a, a few different ways to be able to get it. So, of course, yes, uh, we are in shelves in nine different states right now. So that's Colorado, Illinois, which is Benny's only, uh, Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas, Ohio, New Mexico, and Missouri. We're also online. You can go to PursuitSpirits.com, and there will be a link that will take you to SealBox.com, which they can ship to 20-some-odd states. And then we're also uh-huh. going to be launching a partnership with Reserve Bar to have them shipped within a few certain states. But, no, we're not in Pennsylvania yet, so we will get no, there to the, the Pittsburgh Pennsylvania area like, I don't know how much you know about Pennsylvania, but talk about primitive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is, it's another control state, so it's just one of those things that it's, it's hard to break in, but once you're in, um, hopefully it takes care of you. Hey, we had, we, had a stay, we had to stay home specially for your box to arrive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just glad it got there and you know, the, the post office person isn't sitting there drinking it instead. He, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a funny thing to conclude our conversation. My, my mother... Well, my family didn't drink. I mean, we we drank sherry at funerals, and that was that was that was about it. This is and the then, north of England. And then and then my mother joined a, a group, which her husband had been in to begin with, 
which was a Scotch tasting group, and they, they would taste several Scotches over dinner in the evening like once a month or something like that. And uh, so I decided I would check my mother out when, when she, one time when she visited. And of all things, the state store had some ba- barrel... What? A- a- actual barrel temperature. I mean, ba- barrel... What am I talking about? But when you drink it right from the oh, barrel. Oh, barrel right. Yeah. And, and, you, and you are overproof for the, for the ordinary bourbon industry, right? I mean, for us, um, so it's not at cash strength, so cash strength or barrel proof would yeah, be that's something what I, where that's it's... That were the words I was looking for. I couldn't find Yeah, so I mean, those are typically in the, you know, 115 to 130s is what you'll find with that. For us, we wanted to be a little bit lower than that, and that's because of, of our audience and who we talk to is, is primarily the, the, the bourbon and whiskey enthusiast and the, the curious drinker because... Anytime that we and if you're if you're listening to a bourbon podcast, odds are that you're you're already in too deep. So you're probably not drinking <laughs> a bunch of you know you're probably not drinking a bunch of eighty six or ninety three proof stuff. And usually for us, yeah, our bar kind of starts at a hundred. Like hundred and above is really where we like our our sweet spot to be. And right. it was a, a whole a whole process of how we got there. But we did end up landing our our magic proof point of one hundred eight. And that's really what we try to proof our whiskeys at is 108, which for us and our audience, it's a great way to have still a lot of flavor packed in there. There's not a whole lot of reduction to do with water to get to that proof point, but it's still low enough that it allows people that are not the true whiskey enthusiasts, maybe they're getting into the category to try it and still kind of latch on to it because we're still two proof points below, um, like say a Russell's Reserve, which is 110. Right. So we're still two proof points below some of those industry standards that you do see out there. Well, it's been a delight, Kenny Coleman, talking to you about Pursuit Spirits, and uh, I've, I've learned a lot just oh, talking to oh, you. Hold, hold on a minute. Let's, 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 let's sound a cheer for the, for the actual whiskeys that won the award. Because I've, I've not heard of the John Barleycorn Awards before. It sounds, sounds like it would be an important win, but... Tell, tell us just a snippet about that before we close. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much for, for bringing that up. Yeah, we've been honored and blessed, as I kind of said at the very beginning of this, that as soon as we started entering our, comp- our awards, sorry, our whiskeys into competition, the awards just started rolling in. So with the rye that we had talked about earlier, I mean, we submitted it for the first time ever, and it received double gold at San Francisco, which is probably one of the most premier it is uh, yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah. That, 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 yeah. I, 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 knew, I knew about that That's one. That's how I, I encountered it. I didn't know about the John Barleycorn. Yeah, and so the John Barleycorn, this was a, a big one that surprised us. I mean, not only did it win double gold, but it won best overall bourbon. So that means it beat That's out pretty term. much all the heritage distilleries that submitted as well. So we came out on top, which was a, a pretty amazing feat for our little brand to see this you know, this four- to six-year-old whiskey blend start beating out everything that's 10 years and above. So it was really a, a kind of a, a cool little accomplishment and maybe a little nod to us that says, hey, I think we're doing something right over here. <laughs> I think you are. We think it's splendid. And uh, I, I wish you continuing success with it. And, um, yeah, and I'm sure you will. Um, how big do you want to go? Well, we'll wait and see about that one, mate. 
I won't ask yeah, you that well, now. <laughs> I can, I'll, give you, I'll give you a little taste of the roadmap here. So right now we're only distributing, like I said, nine states, and that's pretty thin of around 4,000 six-pack cases. But as I'd mentioned, and we had talked about a little bit earlier, with that funding, we've been putting down whiskey starting back in 2020, but really got serious in 2021. So starting around 2026 is when we'll be able to go kind of really more national scale. And we'll be going and holding back barrels until we'll get to around 2030 when we'll hit our final scale point, which will be around 45,000 six-pack cases, which for the most part, that's still considered a boutique brand in the world of whiskey, but it'll still be more widely available at that point. Great. Great. Well, well he, he, I mean, I'm, I'm not a bourbon drinker, but I like yours. So. Well, I'm glad I can make you a believer. <laughs> Okay, well, thank you for talking to us, Kenny. And what do we well, say? Thank Cheers you again or for bottoms the show. Tears or bottoms up, whichever you like. Okay. <laughs> and cheers to you all as well. Thank you again. Bye bye. No, Rabbit. I don't. Please turn oh. it off. Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station. www.aspstation.net. Okay, there we go. The recording has started. Okay, good. Listeners, we're going to be having a, a, a nice discussion with Colin Spoolman of Kings County Distillery. Uh, I can assure you, after uh, my share of nippings, <laughs> that in fact it's a very good product. Uh, and it has a fascinating uh, backstory, history, um, of ancillary activities, and whatnot. Um, Colin, welcome to On the Menu. And I'm going to let Peter start off the discussion because, to be perfectly honest, he's drunk most of it. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. He's going to talk to you just a second. Okay, Colin, you you wrote a book about about who you are and why we are and that kind of stuff. And I'm sure that information is probably on your website, your website being, go ahead. King, kingscountydistillery.com. And for those people who don't know, Kings County is a part of the boroughs of New York City. Which one in particular, Colin? Brooklyn is the, Brooklyn was once a town within Kings County but then grew so large as to be um, the same geography. And so Brooklyn and Kings County mean the same thing. And and right right next door is Queens County, right? Exactly, yes. Queens is Queens County. And I'm I'm going to start out with number one in your little booklet, who we are, Kings County Distillery is. Go ahead and describe who you are. Yes, so we are the uh, first of the craft distilleries to open in Brooklyn, and we are focused exclusively on American whiskeys and kind of uh, take the opportunity of being in New York City to um, really create American whiskey that is distinct from Kentucky bourbon uh, and really use the, the culture's distilling cultures from around the world to make 
whiskeys that um, are are sort of new but yet follow tradition. So um, we make whiskeys in a, a number of different styles, but usually borrowing a little bit from American culture and then also a little bit from Scotch whiskey or Irish whiskey culture. And you only distill whiskey for your own label, which is quite quite unique in the trade, as I understand it, because a lot, a lot of people spend their time trying to find more and different blends. You, you, mm-hmm. you, believe mm-hmm. whiskey, you believe the whiskey and its ingredients should speak for itself. Yeah, our, our packaging is pretty simple and minimalist, which I think is unusual for sure in, um, in all spirits. And, um, yeah, we wanted to put the focus on what was inside the package, not our the graphic designers that we paid for. So <laughs> they have these very minimalist-type labels. Um, uh, but I think, you know, the, the result of that is highlighting all the different kinds of different whiskeys that we make. So we make bourbon, we make rye, we make moonshine, we do a single malt Scotch-style whiskey, um, all different kinds of um, whiskeys that we make, but they're all packaged more or less the same. Yeah, they uh, actually all look a little bit like medicine bottles. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Probably nobody's ever said that to you before. It uh, looks well, like quite a you know, the, it's, the, the intent was not necessarily for that, but it, it was just to make it sort of, simple and, and, and timeless, and so it, I think it has that quality, for sure. You, you've got six things, I guess, that, that you think represent you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to read them because I think they sound so, sound so cool. A true mm-hmm. graft spirit from grain to glass. Mm-hmm. Authentic, traditional whiskeys. So you've got a, a whiskey with chocolate in it. You've got, mm-hmm. you've, got a, yep. you've got whiskey of a variety of different ingredients like that that are in your product line, but you have a focus on integrity and transparency. So you're sourcing organically, locally, and using non-GMO grains and distilling for quality mm-hmm. over yield using true pot steels, a radical shift in style from commercial whiskey. And, and I've been enjoying it long. Now, the next page, I just turned the page, and this page is called Praise. I'm, I'm going to let you brag and explain to our listeners <laughs> well, how, how, yeah. we, how well we've done in the competitive marketplace. Yeah, so we're now in our uh, almost 13 years old, and whiskey is a thing that takes a lot of time to um, create. You can't just make whiskey overnight you have to wait if it's a four-year-old whiskey it has to be four years old so uh we've been around for a little while and in in the in that course um i think we have found a lot of people who appreciate that we are um very different from all the you know sort of bourbon that was on the shelf um really is made by very large corporations in very big factories and so the small distiller, or the, you know, we think of craft breweries being all around the country, but craft distilling really didn't exist 
until only very recently. So there's a handful of distilleries that are 100 years old, and then there's something like 1,500 distilleries that are um, less than 10 years old. And well, so... That, that, that goes back to this evil idea called prohibition. Yes, yes. Something I only just saw on, on page four, you, you are actually a Kentuckian by birth and mm-hmm. starting out. Yeah, I, I grew up in Kentucky. I grew up in the moonshine part of Kentucky, not necessarily the bourbon part of Kentucky. Um, but I came to appreciate uh, Kentucky bourbon and really felt like there was something missing from Kentucky bourbon, which was the small-scale production. And so wanted to do that, but do it in a way that was sort of appropriate to New York with our agriculture and history in New York and New York City with all of its restaurants and bars and and cocktail culture. Um, So ended up doing something, you know, that's that's different um, than what's happening in Kentucky. And now, of course, small distillers have started up in Kentucky as well. So it, there's really a renaissance happening in um, spirits production in the United States, left over from yeah, prohibition, I mean, for sure. The revival really um, has started taking place in what we refer to as the mid-Atlantic states, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's really the historical territory of, of Pennsylvania got involved early. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, and um, Pennsylvania is a great example of a state that had a very rich historical distilling tradition, which all but died with the, the consolidation of the distilling industry. So the bourbon brands mm-hmm. bought the rye whiskeys, made them in Kentucky, moved them to Kentucky, and made them as an afterthought for their bourbon production. Okay. And so a group of New York distillers got together and said, let's bring rye back to the Mid-Atlantic or to, to New England. Well, I mean, we're still, I guess, on the cusp there, but yeah, um, right. our, history is, our history is certainly rye whiskey, so let's make rye whiskey and, and do it in a more historic tradition in using grains that are sourced from New York State as opposed to Canada or um, you know, the Pacific Northwest. So that was the idea behind making rye whiskey, but we've also been making bourbon and we've also been making a lot of different kinds of whiskeys, but always with an eye towards historical um, production techniques. Now, now I... Hold on a minute. You moved off the chapter called Prey. No matter how we didn't call that. We are not talking to the The lady who's in the picture... Um, but that's a dead phone. Anne was, Anne was holding on to the phone. <laughs> so, so let's do that again. Page, page three recognizes all of the different medals, if you like, and conferences about yeah. liquor that you've, that you've been successful enough to win prizes. Tell us about some of those. Yeah, we've, um, I think spirits journalists have recognized what we've been up to and then in the various different competitions for spirits, world, you know, whiskey competitions and, and spirits competitions, judging 
um, our whiskeys have held up in blind tasting, and that's always very gratifying to see that. But we have many double gold and gold and superlative metals um, for all of our whiskeys. Yeah, there, there seems to be a lot of interest in moonshine. Why is that? I think because moonshine is a historical um, kind of a folk tradition. Um, it, was, it became an illegal thing halfway through American history, um, but that doesn't mean that it isn't very much a part of history and very much a living history that continues, whether or not it continues legally. So where I grew up, there was a lot of culture of moonshine making. And so um, it, it was interesting to me to connect to that um, sort of lost folk history um, in, in trying to make American whiskey more like what it, the, the way that it used to be made before Prohibition. So really having to start with moonshine is the beginning of being a, a sort of historical whiskey producer because you're going back to an older technique before industrialization. I've been resisting this, but I can't resist it any longer. You have such an interesting individual perspective on this whole process. Whatever did you do before you started making whiskey? <laughs> well, um, I, was, uh, I studied architecture in college, so my career before this was in architecture. Um, but I guess, uh, you know, I'm very interested in history and very curious person, and so uh, took all of that and applied it to spirits, which is an industry where I think there hasn't been a lot of curiosity and there hasn't been a lot of creativity for a long time. So um, I think the whole industry was sort of ripe for that kind of, um, you know, sort of questioning the sort of status quo and, and kind of coming in and bringing in a new perspective. Well, I mean, I, I would not count you any, with anything less than that. I knew you were going to be an interesting person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you really get into this. Um, you, how many people do you employ? I guess it's seasonal. We have, yeah, we have 20 full-time people, um, and that's distillers and bottlers and then people who run um, not just the production of the, the whiskeys, but also we have a tasting room in Brooklyn um, that you can come visit. So we have a, a tour guide and a, and a bartender uh, program. Yeah, I was leading on that. Yeah, we have about Yeah, You have tours, you have um, a, a special events um, and celebrations. Mm -hmm. um, how does anybody find out what's going on? Go on to the website? The website is the best way to find out or, or to sign up for our email list, which you can do through the website. No, that's Both a good give you, Yeah. I mean, that's how I found you, right? Yeah, I guess yeah. so. Yeah. Um, so now, um, how, I mean, can your retail, uh, can people buy the, the uh, product right off the, the website, e-commerce? Uh, it, 
It depends. So it's not actually that we're selling the product to you, but if you go to our website, it will connect you to a retailer that can legally ship to you. So in most states, you can buy right off our website. Um, but in many states, you can go right to the liquor store and buy the product. Certainly New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, you know, kind of the northeastern states. Pennsylvania, unfortunately, has oh, a very backward relationship to alcohol, which I'm sure you know. So we're not no, much older yeah, it's uh, it's funny because I mean I've lived in, in so many places where I could just call an order and have it delivered. <laughs> it was a mm-hmm. shock. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, if yeah. if there's any business the government should not be in, it's selling alcohol. <laughs> my fervent view, but but it is you know, what it is. One of the driving factors in perpetuating this archaic system are actually the um, unions and of the people who actually work in these liquor stores. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, anyhow, um, now, who do you think your typical customer is? I think it's certainly somebody who's very interested in whiskey. I mean, that's a, that's a big group there of people who are very um, obsessive, nerdy, geeky about whiskey. Um, But there's also, we have a very strong local audience in New York City of people who, you know, they may not be aficionados, but they just kind of like supporting a local business. Um, And I think there's a handful of, of, of people around the country who kind of recognize that we're trying to do something very different and want to support that in just a sort of small business versus big business kind of way. Um, so I think we have a very um, – and, and I would say a younger audience for, to, to some extent yeah. because there's a yeah, perception of whiskey as a kind of um, old, older, masculine um, sort of thing. And I think we're trying to kind of get past that and say this is a drink that's for anybody. Yeah. And it's not picture, gendered. I picture the typical rye drinker is somebody uh, who requests four roses. That's a blend. This is a rye. Peter's giving me a dirty look. He has a question. Let me pass it back to him. Yes. No, it's not. It's not a question. It's 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 an interesting facet of the whole existence of your. King County Distillery, because you don't use rye or wheat in in your bourbon at all. Right. And it's all 100% organic, non-GMO, all that kind of stuff. We believe distinctive ingredients make better whiskey, you say. And here's something I need you to explain, because I don't understand the difference. Our high malt mash bill borrows more from Scotch whiskey than is traditional for bourbon. And, and yet, where, where I come from, they, they, they use bourbon barrels to make their scotch anyway. So what's going on here? What's, go, so, what's going well, on here? Yeah, so the, within the world of scotch, there's a lot of things that we're using from scotch whiskey to make American whiskey, to make bourbon. So on the first piece of it is that we're using 
more barley, which is usually the exclusive ingredient for scotch whiskey or for single malt scotch whiskey. So we're using more malted barley than is typical of a bourbon. That's number one. Number two is that we're using pot stills, uh, which is a more sort of archaic, but also sort of enshrined in scotch whiskey production. Um, And we're using a variety of different barrels in scotch. In scotch production, you use bourbon barrels or sherry casks and different sizes of barrels and, um, you know, usually barrels that held something previously. A lot of American whiskey, bourbon, and rye have to be aged in new barrels, but we use different sizes of barrels. And we do use some um, second-use barrels to um, create more variety in what we're warehousing than you would see in a typical bourbon distillery. So we're... I'm sorry, go ahead, Colin. So I'm just saying, in in general, we're we're using more production techniques that um, belong to Scotch production than would be typical of bourbon production. But ultimately, the product is, in most cases, American bourbon or rye. It's just right. that the process is very different. But but you you actually name the supplier of your rye and wheat. Oh no, you don't use. I'm reading incorrectly. Your corn is 100 percent. Organic. Yeah, it's, it's grown. It's grown by Claus and Mary Hal Martins, someplace mm-hmm. in up in New York. In, in the Finger Lakes. Of, yeah. And your malted barley comes all the way from my good old from neighborhood, Eng- England and Scotland. Yeah. So uh, we use a couple different um, barley's that we use. Both a peated that comes from Scotland and then an unpeated malted barley that comes from, uh, is actually grown in England. So, um, and, and a lot of the historical barley production, a lot of the reason that beer and whiskey even exist as cultural, you know, as things that, that have uh, existed and propagated and expanded over time, has a lot to do with Northern European brewers and whiskey makers that traveled over to the U.S., and then took those uh, techniques and applied them to the grains that were growing in the U.S., which were corn, and to some extent rye, as opposed to barley. Um, so our whiskey tradition tends to rely on different grains and different, slightly different production techniques. But it's interesting to connect back to that sort of origin, even in the grains that we're currently using for our product. Now, what's, what's the difference between a sweet mash and a sour mash? So a sour mash process takes what's left in the still after you distill. You're stripping out all the alcohol from a fermented beer. Um, right. And so what's left over is a, is a low alcohol, <laughs> sort of non-alcoholic beer. Um, that has a, a very low pH and that sort of uh, acidity is favorable to fermentation and so can be used to jumpstart the next fermentation. And so many distillers will take that leftover stillage and use it to start the fermentation. We start every fermentation fresh. Um, again, okay. a little bit more of a scotch process than a bourbon process. Many bourbons are, are sour mash. 
Yeah, you, you, you use pot stills as opposed to, I forget the name of the other kind. Column stills. Column stills. Which are a, 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 a more modern and more efficient um, type of distillation. That you do multiple distillations within the same still. They're just more mechanically complex. Um, but uh, many would argue you strip out a lot of flavor by using a column still. And so uh, there's a, an argument that pot stills uh, make more flavorful whiskeys. I certainly have tried both techniques and prefer the pot still. And um, I think it shows in our products, which have a lot more viscosity, a lot more flavor. Um, there's, there's a richer, just uh, more buttery flavor to the whiskeys because of those pot stills. Yeah, I, I will. Re, I will emphasize uh, in agreement with you on that. Is that the flavor is, I think, the most differentiating um, characteristic mm-hmm. of your product. <laughs> yeah, right. I, mean, I, I very much appreciate you saying that because, you know, you could talk about all the different ways that you do something different, but ultimately, if it doesn't taste any different, then you're sort of wasting your time. But you know, it is my fervent hope that all of these production choices do lead to a very um, differentiated and more flavorful product. Well, I mean, I can't thank you enough, Solomon, for talking to us about it. And um, I'm so happy we connected to know that there is this whole other area and arena of of product of this classification. Mm -hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so there's, again, um, and we're talking to Colin Spoolman uh, from Kings County Distillery uh, in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and uh, go on the website. It's kingscountydistillery, all one word, dot com, and find out all their special events, all the ways and where you can get the products, all the different products, of course, and uh, they're, they're little uh, celebrations, I call them. And not only your tastings, but you you build things. One one uh, one event you had you had pizza from different pizzerias, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we have a pizza pop up. A guy a guy comes and makes pizzas well, on, on site while you while you wait. Yeah, I'm I'm just directing the listeners, I yeah. think, to this website because there's so much going on. And that's the best way you, you could get this information. Um, Colin, much continued success with your product and your business. And, um, yeah, mm-hmm. and I knew you're somebody I wouldn't mind having dinner with, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, maybe we could do that. And, uh, if you find yourself in Brooklyn or if I come your way, maybe we can make that work. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Colin. Very good. Thanks, Ann. Thanks for having me on the show. Okay. You can stop it now. Did you stop it now?